We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Well, my name is Joseph and I'm an alcoholic. I want to thank, first off, this uh, for this opportunity to speak on this platform. As I was saying earlier, that I, when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, I remember some CDs were given to me about speaker meetings and, and some recordings that were done for from other speakers in my home group. And I just never, I never imagined that I would, um, somebody would want to record my, my story. And it's a great, it's a great honor to be not only a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but trusted with sharing my experience in the program, my experience with this disease that I have. And I'm looking forward to being of service in that, in that way. So what I'm going to do is share a little bit about what it meant for me to walk into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting and what that looked like. I was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. I currently live in uh, Oakland in the Bay Area. And um, during the pandemic was given an opportunity to be exposed to Zoom meetings. And that's where I met uh, one of my friends who who got me, gave me this opportunity to, to speak to you all in this platform. But I originally grew up in Los Angeles uh, to two parents that were both addicts and alcoholics, loving, loving people, uh, generous people, hardworking people who taught me a lot, taught me a lot of good stuff. And I have very good relationships with them today. Uh, but it wasn't always like that. They were alcoholics and addicts, uh, divorced. And for any, for any kid, that, it's going to be strange um, going from, from house to house on the weekends and being shared like that with family, um, especially when they're using or especially if they're, if they're going through their own struggles and their own battles. And as a kid, I didn't understand what they were going through. All I understood was that I don't feel comfortable. And that seemed to be a theme for me for many, many years was that I don't feel, un- I feel uncomfortable. I don't feel comfortable in this situation, whatever that situation was. And I turned to things at a young age that what I seemed, what seemed natural to me, I turned to things that made me feel more comfortable. And I saw that that's the same thing my parents did. They were, they were. 30, excuse me, they were 40, 50, 60 hour a week working people. I say that I was raised by my mom, mainly she's the one who took care of me, but she was, she'd be working 60 hours a week. And my dad was, was doing construction. He could party hard on the weekend because his body was in pain. My mom had to smoke her, her pain away because she waitressed for 30 years. And I saw a lot of pain that they had. And so they leaned on things that helped them cope with their, with their experience. And so, and I, so I took that, I, I took that as a, as an opportunity to see how I could change the way I felt. And the reason why I, I share that uh, specifically here 
is because before I was introduced to alcohol, I was exposed to many other things that ended up altering my condition in life. Um, it, it ranged from self-harm, from cutting to skateboarding, exercising, to not eating, overeating, to pornography, to sex, to cigarettes. And I noticed that I didn't have control over the things that changed the way I felt. And I was barely in barely in middle school. I was it was a good kid. I always I always got good grades. I had some nice friends around. Of course, seeking attention from everyone I could. But I noticed that when I felt better about something, artificial, artificially felt better. It wasn't the same way. I didn't react the same way that my friends did. Now I was the guy that wouldn't be able to to put the candy bar down. I wasn't be able to carry a pocket knife because I'd be afraid or I'd cut myself. I was starting to lose control, and I saw that going on. So the reason why I, I, I talk about this was because I noticed I was I did developed a fear of alcohol. I I had seen what it did to my dad and I saw how other things in my life that made me feel good were taking over. So I thought to myself, you know, buddy, you should probably stay away from alcohol. And I did, I did for, for some time as a 13 year old, as a 14 year old, things like punk rock and skateboarding and surfing and getting tattoos was another way of, <laughs> for me, it was another way of, of cutting myself, which, uh, now I look back and, and, and go, I just exchanged one thing for, for another. I wasn't drinking. I told myself, you will not last long if you drink. And so I didn't. I didn't until I was about 15 or 16 years old. Uh, curiosity got the best of me. I told myself well, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be too bad. And it wasn't. I went to a party. I was, I was 15, 16. I looked the way I do now. I'm 29 now, and <laughs> I looked the same age. And I was at a party, and I had a beer. There were, there were cute women around. It was a college party. And I thought to myself, well, you need to have a beer in your hand to fit in here. So I grabbed a beer and drank it, and nothing happened. It actually tasted like garbage. I didn't like the way it tasted, but I fit in. Everyone was drinking, and so I fit in. And since it didn't do anything negative, I thought, well, I'll, I'll have another, another beer. And halfway through that beer, I put the beer down, and that was the first time I actually took a drink, actively went out and took a drink. But what that did, which looking now with the tools that I have from Alcoholics Anonymous, I can see how my need to still be different and the, and the insidious nature of alcohol, even when I'm not getting anything out of it other than just feeling like I fit in, was such a disastrous beginning. Because I knew in my heart at a young age I probably shouldn't do this, and yet I didn't listen to it. In fact, I would say I couldn't. As soon as the decision was made at that moment, what would it hurt 
I was going to drink. And now that I had established, because I'm, I'm the one who's going to take control of my life, I established that it wasn't going to do me any harm. Pandora's box is open. Cat's out of the bag. Well, let's see how bad alcohol really is. The next time I drank, I was about 17 years old. I had a knee surgery. Told myself, well, you probably shouldn't drink because you're on medication. And that night I had about seven shots of tequila. Don't remember getting drunk. I didn't, I don't think I got drunk. And yet it was another moment when I woke up and said, I thought, I thought we said that it wouldn't be a good idea to drink. And I blow it off. I said, well, nothing bad. Again, nothing bad happened here. The first time I got drunk, I went to a friend's house. It was an older friend. Uh, she was you know, old enough to buy alcohol. And I knew that. And I knew that she would probably ask me if I wanted a drink. So I had established my, my – I, I developed a response before she would asked me. I told myself, no, you're not going to drink tonight because you have to drive home. And that's something – we're not, we're not doing that ever. And you got school in the morning. And as soon as she asked me to drink, for whatever reason, I put the bottle of, uh, of alcohol in my mouth and I just, and I chugged it. I don't know why. And the look that she had on her face of, of shock scared me because this was a person who I thought was a hard drinker. This was a person who really enjoyed alcohol. I saw her drunk a lot. I wouldn't go as far as to say she, I, I don't think she's an alcoholic who knows i don't know but she was definitely somebody who enjoyed alcohol and she looked at me with such shock and and, and stopped me and said whoa whoa whoa, whoa you got to slow down relax and it was the first night i got drunk and i remember when i felt drunk it was as if I had been drowning my whole life and I finally had my head above water and I could breathe. And it's funny because I didn't know I was drowning. And when I finally could put my head above water, I knew I, I needed to do this every day for the rest of my life. It was the greatest feeling in the world. And that's the only way I can compare it to another situation is it, I was drowning and I could finally breathe. Well, what was strange was the next thought that I had was you're screwed because I knew where this was going to go. I saw it in my family. I saw it in other friends that I had. I knew where this was going to go. It wasn't going to, it wasn't going to end well for me. And I almost jumped off the balcony that night. I remember sitting on the, the rail of the balcony, contemplating what it would be like to just fall off, uh, which of course scared my friend again. And that was the first time that I got drunk. Um, and of course, I drove home that night, something I, I didn't even think I could ever do. I thought I was such a good person that that was something that I would never be able to. I'd never be able to drive with any drop of alcohol in my system. And I'm driving down Lincoln Boulevard and trying to think of, well, if I go down McConnell, it might make it easier for you know. And I'm trying to find a way home so I avoid busy streets because I know I have alcohol in my system. And I never thought I would be able to do something like that. And that was the first time I got drunk. Um, what I normally, when I, when I do share my, my story, I make it a point to, to express. 
my first me my first um drunk was when i was 17 and i don't have much of a drunk lot because i got sober at 18 um but what did happen in that time was an acknowledgement of a problem that was developing in my behavior to convince myself that it wasn't the problem that I knew already existed, which was I'm going to drink to show that I am different than my dad and my mom and all of my other friends who are alcoholics. I'm different. I don't have to drink. I'm going to drink the way I want to drink. And what that looked like for the next year or so was this pitiful attempt and vain attempt to avoid the truth, which was I was an alcoholic. Now, at the time, I did not have the vocabulary that I do now being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but I knew that this wasn't looking good. So what would end up happening, which I thought <laughs> was my own willpower, I I would say things like, well, I wasn't going to drink, but I changed my mind. Or I was only going to have this much. And I decided ah, I decided to have more. And I made it about my own ability to control my drinking. Well, it was recommended by my mom, actually, when I was 17 years old. And I, I thank her for this today. Um, she, when I was 17 years old, she said to me that everyone in your family is is has this disease so it would be beneficial for you to see and to see other people with it and learn more about it so you should probably go to an alcoholics anonymous meeting she didn't know i was drinking i'd already moved out at 17 and it it felt like a good idea i i took a moment and i said to whatever I heard, whatever voice I heard in my heart, I said, thank you. Thank you for that. I'm going to, I'm going to check out Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did. I contacted a teacher that I had in my high school who he shared to his class that he was an alcoholic and that he shared that his disease is like an allergy to shellfish. You just can't eat it. Can't eat shrimp. Can't eat shrimp cocktail. Can't eat lobster. Can't eat crap. And that's just how it is for him. He can't drink. And I thought that was interesting. And so I asked him after class as a senior, I asked him if he could take me to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting because I think there's a problem developing. I was looking for more excuses to drink. I was going out at weekends and hanging out with people who drank just as hard so that I could tell myself that, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. I mean, they're, <laughs> if I think I'm bad, well, they're the ones that really need help. And so he agreed. He took me to my first meeting. I'm 17 years old. It's a meeting across the street from where I grew up in L.A. And everyone there has got like an age gap of 50, 60 years on me. And they're talking about things I have no, no experience with. And I didn't fit in. I thought to myself, yeah, this, I don't know about this. And then I looked up these weird steps on the wall and I go, dude, I'm in, I'm a, I'm in high school. I got enough homework. I'm not, I'm not doing any, any steps. I'll just stop drinking. How hard can that be? I'll just not drink anymore. I've, I've established that 
sure, the way I understand alcoholism, I'm an alcoholic. I'll just stop drinking. Drinking's not a good idea for me. And that will, and I'll be done with it. And I maybe went to one more meeting from, um, from that, that time period. Uh, I had a, another friend whose father was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and took me to another meeting. And I put four months together. I just didn't drink. And I don't remember much of those four months except for when I drank again. What ended up happening was the thought came into my mind that a drink would be a good idea. And that's all that needed to come into my mind. And the decision was made. I was going to drink. Now, I had already recognized that I am not going to behave well with alcohol in my system and I probably shouldn't drink. That should be enough for me to stop. But I'll say again, the thought came to my mind and the decision was already made. And I remember running to where where I knew I had just moved back in with my mom. I was 18 now. I remember where she had this bottle of, I don't know what, because at 18, you don't know what you're drinking. You just drink. And I remember picking up the bottle saying, this is not a good idea. And it didn't matter. I took a shot. And I, and I started to feel warm again, started to feel connected. And so I took another shot. Now, the, what I've heard in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I, I relate to is that idea of once I have understood at least even a little of what it means to be an alcoholic and accepted that and have participated in an A meeting, it's really going to screw up my drinking. And that's what, and that's exactly what it did. I, I was well aware that of, of my, of my disease. I, again, I didn't have the vocabulary for it, but I was well aware that I'm probably going to die young, but I still tried. I set up rules for myself. I set up uh, certain um, things that, you know, that I wouldn't do. Well, I'm going to drink only on the week. I'm going to drink every other weekend until the, the, the subsequent weekend came. And I said, well, I, I just changed my mind or I'll drink only on the weekends. Well, then some school nights popped in. Well, I'll never drink in the daytime. And then I would, well, at least it wasn't before 10 a.m. And I'm starting to cross these lines in the sand. And I'm starting to convince myself more and more that I'm not going, not only am I not going to be able to control this, but it's getting worse. I remember the last time I got drunk. Not the last time I drank, but the last time I got really, really drunk. Um, I went to a friend's house yet again. Again, I'm, I was I was still underage, so I had people that were older than me that were willing to buy me alcohol. And they went upstairs to do something for dinner and left the bags of groceries downstairs. And I told myself, well, you need to get nice and, and lit now so that you can drink like they drink without them noticing that you needed to drink more. And so I, I rushed to make as many shots as I could of uh, whatever liquor they had before they came downstairs, not realizing that the whole time in the car ride to that house, I'm shaking because I'm so anxious to, to drink again. 
and they come down and, and we have our drinks and they bought me what I wanted at the, at the liquor store. And, and I finished all my alcohol that I had purchased. And I saw that my friend, um, hadn't finished his drink and he was already three sheets to the wind. And, and I looked at his bottle and I thought to myself, well, a real alcoholic would drink his because yours wasn't enough. So you probably shouldn't do that. And then I changed my mind, the same old, the same old game. I changed my mind. I'm making the decision to drink more. Yeah. I woke up in the, in the middle of the, the street in the middle of the night with, with vomit all over me in the gutter, all over the floor, walked back to the house, fell asleep. And I got in the back seat of their car when they drove me home the next morning in so much pain from the hangover. But what I think rocked me more was the realization that I yet again did what I said I wasn't going to do. I wasn't going to get this sick ever again. I wasn't going to drink the other person's bottle. And the next thought that came to my mind, and I see this as a miracle today, was the thought came, the question came of what is it going to take? It's going to take uh, a car accident. It's going to take me committing suicide. It's going to take me killing somebody else. It's going to take a jail sentence. What, you know, my mom crying. What, what, what is it going to take? Because it's only going to get worse. And I had no control of how worse it was going to get. And there was nothing I could do. That's, that's what it meant at that moment to be an alcoholic. There was just nothing I could do. I was going to keep drinking. I might be the, I might be, uh, the type that sits on the couch every day after work and can't talk to anybody after 5 PM. Cause they're so lit. I might be the, the one that dies next year. I, I, but, but what I knew was I wasn't going to be able to decide which one I was. It was just going to happen. I was going to die an alcoholic and drunk. One night about a month later, I, again, like I said, I moved back in with my mom and I had a bottle of wine and it was uh, a gift from somebody. And I, and I left, I left it at, at my mom's house and I decided something, gosh, I would never, never do, which was openly drink at my mom's house. Cause she, she, she was a hard woman. She would not afraid to, to uh, let me hear it and, and reprimand me, but, you know, thank God for her. But I drank, I drank half of this bottle or as much as this bottle as I did. I can't remember. And the next morning with the bottle still there, she looked at me with such shock. And I was, I was prepared to get, you know, smacked or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was. Uh, but all she said was, I raised you to know better that if you need help, you need to go get it. And this was a woman who, you know, when I was 14 would drive me down to Venice beach and just say, you better pick a spot homie because I ain't got money for your rehab. You're just going to have to figure this out. If you, if you got the same disease that your whole family has you, you on your own, good luck. And this was that woman. And when she said, I raised you to know better, a voice came into my head that said, there's the line. Take it or leave it. And the next, next Monday, I went back to the first meeting I ever went to. And by the grace of God, I had been sober since. That was December 12th, uh, 2011. And what my life looked like at that time, as I, as I shared at the beginning of this, 
was I didn't have the vocabulary to know what it meant to be an alcoholic, but what I knew was I was going to die. And I came into that meeting knowing if I'm in an AA meeting, there's really nothing else I can do because there's no amount of jail time. There's no amount of abstinence that will prevent me from one day waking up saying, well, my life's great. Why, why wouldn't I drink? I wouldn't be able to fight. I wouldn't be able to fight that urge or fight that just idea. So I came into AA and me still being stubborn, me still being an alcoholic and ego driven. I wanted to just stop drinking. So I was going to meetings. I wasn't working a program. I didn't even know what that, what that concept was. I didn't have a sponsor. And yet again, I have four months sober and I start going a little crazy because I know drinking is not going to work, but I'm not feeling any sort of relief in my life. I actually feel worse now because alcohol was the only thing that could help me breathe, yet it wasn't helping me breathe anymore. And now I'm left stranded. I finally called one guy, the one guy that gave me his phone number and he was a um, I, I thank God for this meeting because these were men I looked up to as, as, as father figures and they had decades of sobriety. And I called this one guy who gave me his phone number. He's about 70 something years old, 70 something years old. And he said, do you need a sponsor? I said, I do. And he said, okay, you're going to call me every day at 10 AM. If you don't call me at 10 AM, I'm not picking up the phone and don't lie to me. And those are the two things that, that he told me to do. He took me to meetings and told me to get commitments at these meetings, whether it was to make coffee, whether it was to set up the meeting or stay after the meeting. And because I grew up with two, you know, middle-class hardworking, uh, one immigrant parent and, and one who had been stranded at a young age to, to work on her own, I, it was life-saving to go to these meetings and make coffee for these people, clean up the ashtrays. And that's what I, and that's what I did. And I made myself a presence with a bunch of other alcoholics. And what's, what's funny is, is looking back now at the, the, the time that God has blessed me with in recovery, I look at how important it was for me to have established a physical habit of reaching out to others and getting to a meeting because today uh my with my current sponsor i mean i've called him every night for the last six years this my my current sponsor every single night almost the exact same time save for i'm on a plane or something or you know he's sick or i'm sick but it's been every single night but it's because of these skills and these recommendations that i took coming into alcoholics anonymous uh the first couple years now, what was interesting was, is I went through the steps with this guy, but this was a guy who, if my memory serves me correctly, said he wasn't really a big book guy. Well, a guy didn't know what that meant. I barely knew what the big book was, but I just did what he told me to do the way he told me to do it. And so we went through the steps the way he taught me. And it was, a, it was an introduction for me. It was, it's nothing that I, I know about the program now, but at the time it was exactly what I needed. And I was able to do 
some sort of acknowledgement that I'm not going to be able to keep myself sober. I'm not doing this God thing. He also said he's not a God guy, not a big God guy, so don't worry about it. But I knew that there was something going on in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I trusted that. Didn't call it God or anything. I just trusted that. He taught me how to do some sort of inventory and get truth out on paper. And I did that. I read it to him. It's eight pages long. It was 19, 19 at the time. Had me look at other, other things that I was doing in my life. I started making some amends. And then all of a sudden I'm thrown in and I start sponsoring people. And I look back and I, I realize that at 20 years old, I was still a punk 20 year old. I didn't know anything in life. I was arrogant. I was uh, stuck up. I had a chip on my shoulder and now I'm stuck. I'm, I'm sober and it's easy for me to think that I have all the answers now. And I'm getting praised by people because I'm articulate when I share. I'm starting to think that I've arrived the same way I felt when I took my first drink and got drunk. I have reached the point where I don't need to do any more work. Everyone looks up to me now. Well, what ends up happening for somebody like me is I start seeking attention again in other things and in other people. And I get into some trouble. And it's easy to get into trouble when you're a young person in Los Angeles and you're in an AA community. And I, I'm starting to behave in certain ways that are not sober. I have character defects that are blaringly obvious to other people and not me. And to make a very long story short, um, I had to flee the country. I, I got into some trouble with somebody who, who, had, who had threatened me and, and it, didn't, it didn't look good. And I was about three and a half years sober. And so I left the country. And on that plane, I had another experience that was very similar to the one I had when my mom talked to me at 18 years old. And I'm sitting on this plane and I hear a voice in my heart that's asking me, you know, why is it that at your age, I'm 22 at the time, why is it that your friends in high school are graduating college and you're having to flee the country? And I thought to myself, I'm going, gosh, I, I, don't, I don't have the answer to that. I don't know why. I thought everything was going to be fine once I stopped drinking. You know, who, who am I? Who am I to actually live a good life? I started feeling some self-pity. And then my, my heart spoke again. And I heard the voice that said, who are you to say what you're worth? And it was as if I was finally able to see clearly. And I felt warmth cover my entire body from the inside. And that voice was right. I have no right to say or to judge my own worth in this life. This life was a gift. And I was given this gift. And it is my responsibility to take care of this gift. And I started working a program of Alcoholics Anonymous in my life. I started going to meetings wherever I, the, you know, where I fled to and, and eventually came back, got a new sponsor. And we started working through the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Wouldn't you know, they have a book. At four and a half years sober, when I come back, I, didn't, I hadn't read through the book yet. I get a sponsor 
who has gone through the book and he actively reads the book with other people he's working with. And so that's what I did. We went through the book one-on-one and we started working through the steps the way it was outlined in the book. And I'm starting to see clearer. I'm starting to see my behavior. I'm starting to see more character defects. I'm doing a, a more thorough inventory of my resentments, of my fears, of my sexual behavior. I'm starting to make amends that I didn't think were a big deal. It's, well, it's so easy for me to say, oh, well, they've forgotten about it by now. Nah, I don't need to do that. It wasn't that bad. And I'm, I'm facing this man who's going, Who, what are you talking about? You need to make that amends. And I'm starting to develop a relationship with a higher power, which at that time I didn't have language for, but I just considered it that voice that was in my heart. And it was wonderful. And my life was starting to to shine. Well, of course, there was more to be there was more to be done as as every every day presents presents me that that realization. I looked at what's read in every, about just about every, um, I think every AA meeting I've ever been to, save for maybe a couple, we read through chapter five, how it works. And there's a line that says we're willing to grow along spiritual lines. Now, I am the person who will sit in a meeting and say, well, I've read this so many times. I don't need to listen. I'll go get some coffee. I'll go check my phone really quick. And wait for this um, this reader to finish chapter five, how it works. It's easy for me to, to, to develop that ego again. I've been, I've been here long enough. And I finally heard that again. I heard this idea of being willing to grow along spiritual lines. And I had to consider if that was a sentence to actually take into consideration or if it was just a read over sentence. And what I've, (laughs) what I've come to, to understand is none of this is meant to be looked at lightly. As they say, they beg of me to be fearless and thorough from the very start. I'm, I'm considering grown men and women begging me to take this seriously. So maybe what they're saying is, not so maybe what they're saying isn't meant to be just read over with glazed eyes at that time i was having difficulty with religion i i I needed a deeper relationship with god and i and i could see that Um, but i didn't want to surrender my idea of God and my understanding of God. See, I had an idea that I didn't want to be changed. But yet chapter five said, we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. And it doesn't say that I'm going to develop a God. And that's what I understand. It means that I need to be open to God as the idea of God or whatever that's however way you want to cut that definition is going to be presented to me and understandable. I took a job in Jerusalem where I was, I had, I had a, I had a friend who I had been already calling on a, as a 
almost on a, as a spiritual father. So, you know, somebody who guided me in, in certain things in my life. And it was just, it was just a nice, a nice man to hear. And I admired him as almost like a mentor. And he gave me an opportunity to work in Jerusalem with him. He was working on a book and I had already done some, some schoolwork in anthropology. And I was, wasn't, I was half, I wasn't half bad at languages. So he gave me this opportunity and, and, and in Jerusalem, I had an experience and thought to myself, what is it going to take for you to start listening to your heart and taking this seriously? And what's going to happen if you listen to your heart and the voice that you hear is not the voice you wanted to hear? Are you going to read over chapter five and act like you're doing this work and act like you're willing to go along spiritual lines? Or are you going to take this seriously? Because in my experience, God's going to do with me what God wants to do with me, regardless of how I feel about it, just as, just as strongly, if not more strongly, than, than the way alcohol was going to do with me. But it's my chance to either listen to it or not. And at that moment, I realized that I was all talk. Yet again, there, not, a new, not a new experience in my life. Not a new character defect. I want to appear like I, I look good. I want to look good. I want to appear like I'm doing this work. And it wasn't working anymore. And I needed a deeper relationship and a deeper connection with my heart. And the, and the, the voice that I was hearing was not the voice I wanted to hear. Now, the problem with fighting the heart in my life is there's only a couple ways that's going to go. It's either I cave and listen to it or I don't and turn back to what I know. That lasted, that suffering really lasted for about uh, two years. And at seven years sober, I was already in a relationship with a woman who's, who's now my wife, living in another city in, in, um, on another side of the United States. And jumping in front of traffic didn't seem like a bad idea. Drinking when drinking is not going to work anymore. I know where that's going to go, but at least ending it all immediately would be something of, of, of a relief. And that thought was starting to cross my mind a little too often. I'm starting to notice my behavior in other areas of my life that were sexual, that were not appropriate anymore for me. But yet fighting. I want to behave in the way that I want to behave. I should be, right? I'm sober. I should be able to do what I want to do if, as long as I'm not drinking. And all the while, this voice is patiently waiting for me to surrender. I went to a meeting. I had a, already had a new sponsor. I'm thinking, okay, I just need to do another inventory again. I just need to get honest again. And I'm doing these inventories and I'm speaking these truths and I'm not feeling any relief. I'm still going crazy. And I've heard stories of, of the, the, the men with 10 years and they put a gun in their mouth. And I'm, and I'm hearing these stories and I'm getting scared because I don't want to drink again, but I don't know what else to do. 
And when I get desperate, I do some pretty creative things, unfortunately. I was in the back room of this, uh, what do you call it? Like a clubhouse. It was, um, yeah, I guess it was a clubhouse. And I didn't realize that there was a meeting going on. I, I had expected that there wasn't a meeting. I guess they changed on that day and there was a meeting that day. It was a step, step series. And I heard a speaker talk and I went, Oh, geez. Okay. I'm just, I'm just going to leave now and get out of here. And I walk out of the back room and the speaker speaking. He just, Hey buddy. Hey, welcome. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll stick around. And this was a guy who shared that he had 24 years and relapsed. And he now has six. Had six at the time. And my heart dropped. I didn't know that happened. I didn't know that people went out a decade sober. I thought when you reached a certain level, you, you knew what to do and you were impervious to, to, to relapse 24 years. You know, I was older than the time I came in as a, as a young was well, a kid really, but as a young man to get sober, there's no way that that could actually happen. And here was a guy who spoke with such humility and it seemed like he knew what the disease was and that I was missing something. And I needed his number. I got his number. And the next day I called and I cried and said, I don't want to die. And I remember that conversation. He said, okay, I'll help you. And he took me through the steps the way um, I, I, I take men through the steps now, and depending even, even women, um, which, was a, which was a way that I had never in my life examined my relationship with God, my relationship with alcohol, my relationship with myself. So a lot about relationships. And I listened to this man because he spoke from a place of pure willingness and interest in helping me. It wasn't for him to blow, uh, you know, toot his own horn. It wasn't him to show off. It wasn't for him to show off. He just wanted to help me. And so I did the same old, I did the same old thing. I asked him if I could, uh, you know, call him every day the way I had, uh, done in the past. And I remembered, I asked him that and he had a pause and he said, no, you're not leaning on me when your world's falling apart. This is an opportunity. And I was shocked because what I was taught was you call somebody every day, you get to meetings, you stay sober. And he considered the, the, the contrary and asked, have you seen people drink and do that? And I said, well, yeah. And he goes, so what does that tell you? And it was the first time I actually considered that there was more to this than just going to meetings, not drinking in between meetings, playing the tape forward, playing the tape back. Something else was going on here. And so we went through the book like it was a textbook. He was very uh, serious about that. He, he took me through the book like it was a textbook. And we started to look at what it meant to be an alcoholic of, of this three-part disease, that there's this physical allergy that I, didn't, I wasn't aware that I even had, which was when I drink, 
something happens to me that doesn't happen, for example, to my wife, which means I need to drink more. Even, even if I don't drink more, the allergy still, the allergy is still produced. I relate it when I'm, when I'm speaking to people, I relate it to my allergy with tree nuts. It doesn't matter how I feel about it or how many I eat. If I eat almonds, my throat's going to get scratchy. It just, it just is what it is. I can't help that. What's well, the same thing that happens to alcohol when I drink in any, with any amount, any mindset, there is something inside of me that builds up that needs to drink more. So then the obvious solution would be to stop drinking. But then here comes the second phase that I wasn't, the second part that I wasn't aware of coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, which was this mental obsession that there's a day that's going to come where I'm going to forget why I stopped drinking and that that drink is going to look good. And he really leaned in on me with this one because he presented the subtle fights that I would present to the disease as if I was going to beat it up. And he would share with me these cliches that I, and I remember I had, I had heard in the meetings of, well, all you got to do, buddy, is just play the tape forward and play the tape back. And he goes, if you're doing that, you gravely misunderstand what's going on here. Or as you know, the, the disease is doing push-ups in the parking lot. And he goes, and what are you going to do? You're going to do push-ups. Good luck. Let me know how that goes for you. And he gave me an idea. He gave me an idea of alcoholism and the alcoholic that I had never considered. And the idea was that if I am an alcoholic or a consideration was that if I am an alcoholic, it means I'm going to drink again. And I didn't want to hear that. I did not want to hear that. But he was right. That for me, as an alcoholic, the day will come where I will, I'll drink again. At the first step, that's what it would mean for me to be an alcoholic. My life has become unmanageable, <laughs> drunk or sober, and that I'm powerless over what's going to happen to me. If I have this physical allergy and I have this mental obsession, I'm going to drink again. And he starts looking at this third part, which is this spiritual malady. And I didn't know what the word malady was. I've acted like I did for about seven or eight years until he told me to look it up in the dictionary. And this, this disease or ailment, that this spiritual ailment that I have, that's going to start dictating where I go and look for connection again. That's what it was. When I drank, I connected. I was, as I said, I was able to breathe for the first time. And so we started talking about relationship with higher power and what that's going to look like. Started talking about what it would mean to surrender. The difference between, as he would say, somebody surrendering or submitting. Are you going to submit until this all blows over? Or are you going to actually bend down and hand over your sword and give up the fight? Because you know what's coming next. I'd been around, I'd been around long enough. I knew that after the third step was an inventory. He goes, you know what's coming next. 
Are you going to actually bend over and give up the sword? And we did. And this man took me through an inventory that was so gnarly and so thorough that the only way it was really uh, successful was because he did it with me. And I didn't see that at the beginning of my recovery. I saw this idea of the sponsor, ah, you know, taken through the, this, this newcomer, this guy and sitting back and letting him do the work. And what I saw him doing with me was telling me his experience of certain behaviors and resentments and fears and sexual behavior in his own life that revealed things to him that allowed me to see in my, as you would say, we're going into this cave together and we're going to shine this flashlight on certain areas. And we're going to say, well, what's that? And you might not know, and we're going to move on and we'll, we'll keep looking. We'll keep digging, but you keep digging and moving around these boulders and moving around these rocks inside you start getting some light in there. But we did it together. And I read it to him. I read it to him in a day. It was about eight or nine hours. We started looking at character defects, things that I, I ended up calling myself in this inventory or things that he saw. And he had me actually write down, I'm really good at acting like I know definitions of things. I can't tell you how many times I say, oh, it's a daily reprieve. reprieve and I, don't, I didn't even know what reprieve meant. I thought it had something to do with what I needed to do that day. And he presented to me this, <laughs> no, man, <laughs> a reprieve is a cessation from death. I had no role in that. That's a grace. He was a man that, that actually talked to me about what it meant to be given this grace, unearned and unmerited. And I can't tell you how many times I thought I earned my seat in AA. I earned my chip. That's what I'm saying. I do not understand what grace is. The biggest blessing I got from this program up to this point with him was doing, was making amends. I don't like looking bad. And if I need to admit that I'm wrong and don't have a clever way of getting out of it, I don't want to do it. And we're going through all of these people that I've harmed, whom I've harmed. And he's saying, you know, which ones you need to make. And I did. And I did. I knew exactly which ones I did not want to make. And I knew which ones were actually going to present me an opportunity to live a sober life. And I did it. I went up to these people. I had all my names on flashcards and I had what I had on the back of them. And I, I had to visit them in person, reached out, made phone calls or desperately sought them out. Of course, checking with him all the while, as we, as it says in the book, we kind of go through eight and nine together. We're making this list while we're actively making amends and checking with him to see if this is appropriate. This isn't, and I'm making these amends and I'm starting finally to feel like I am the man that my heart has been trying to get me to become. And through that, I continue to make inventory because I would get some time together, do a fourth step and wonder why three years later I'm having a panic attack. I still had that notion that, well, I did the steps. Good to go. Look at me, mom. I'm, I'm sober today. Everyone gives me the pat on the back and I'm, they're proud of me. And, and then I have a panic attack. 
and I break up with the girlfriend or I, I quit the job or I, I do something insane because I don't know what else to do. And so I started to continue to do inventory. And to this day, I go over which character defects I engaged in in that day, including behaviors that I should be proud of that God has given me the opportunity to perform. And then on Sunday, I read it to my sponsor. My relationship with God today is not where I wanted it to be. I did not want to be a religious person. I did not want to be a person who spoke the way I speak today, but I am. Because I hear that voice in the back of my head from my, my sponsor. Do you want to appear like you're doing this work or do you want to actually do it? And I had to grow along spiritual lines. I was willing. And today I am a religious man. Today I do have a practice. I have a daily practice. I have a wife who shares that practice with me. My schooling is actually in this practice. Now, am I, am I the best at it? Absolutely not. I have a spiritual father who always asks me, did you meditate today? And more often than not, I don't. Because I still fear surrendering everything to God as I understand God. My old sponsors would say, every day is a new surrender. And I find that to be truer than I'd care to admit. Because I will still find something to prevent me having to have a deeper relationship with my creator. I still want to hold on to some sort of idea that I did this. And thank God the world has been very patient with me. I I am very blessed. And what this allows me to do is actually be a person who carries the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. Not as I go to meetings and I share and I feel good about myself and then I'm fine. But to actually share what it means to be somebody working the program of Alcoholics Anonymous in their life. Because I wasn't. I wasn't doing that. I'm able to speak at a meeting and, you know, pray beforehand that I don't lie about anything or that I don't exaggerate about anything, which to me ends up being the same thing, and that I don't show off and seek attention, I still make mistakes. I still may say something and realize two days later and go, it wasn't true, was it? But that I can, re- I, that's revealed to me now, and it's easier for me to adjust, that I can actually reach out to, to another man or another woman who's seeking help. And just be there for them and listen and show them what I'm doing. Not just talk about it and just do it. I'm able to be a presence in my family today and serve them as a sober man from the, for those who are also suffering from this disease and keeping my mouth shut if they don't want to hear it. And what's, what's great about bringing the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to other people that has nothing to do with alcohol is the idea that this program has given me a life that is centered and founded in faith and backed by pro- appropriate action. And it doesn't have to do, doesn't have, have anything to do with alcohol. It doesn't have to have anything to do with my abstinence from alcohol, but it has everything to do with sobriety with a capital S, the big sobriety. 
the sobriety of being awake, finally being awake and seeing what life is for me today as a man who doesn't have to rely on material things like alcohol, like sex, like food, like exercise, like self-harm, cigarette, whatever it is, and can actually rely on my heart, which to me is God-given. So today, I hope to God, I have an opportunity to do some more inventory before the night ends. <laughs> I have my call at 8.30 with my sponsor. I hope to God that I'm able to, to meditate today before he call, before I make that phone call. I have schoolwork I'm doing. I have cooking to do for, for me and my wife. And I could live today being available to another alcoholic or to another human being that knows what it means to look for anything and everything to not have to admit defeat. Because it doesn't feel good. At the end of it, a meeting that I used to go to the first time when I came back from that fleeing from the country. At the end of the meeting, they read the last two paragraphs of page 164. And the first line of the last paragraph said, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. And that's a, that's a tough word, abandon. I can't think of, when I think of the word abandon, I think of everyone jumping ship because it's sinking. And, in, and, 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 and rather taking the, the depths of the ocean and whatever that death is going to bring than sink on this ship. And that's what I have to consider every day. Am I willing to abandon myself to God as I understand God today and make this program and these steps an active part of my life? And um, I, I will be asking myself that today. So thank you for letting me share my story with you. Joseph, yeah. Yeah. I feel inadequate because you are a fantastic speaker and you have this deep, um, captivating voice. And I'm not sure that my questions can add value, but that's, um, ego in reverse, right? <laughs> so well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see why you asked me early on. Don't edit my story. Don't take out any ums. There were no ums. <laughs> 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 All right. You have this really magical ability to hear your thoughts that are maybe not your thoughts back from when you were really, really young. Do you think that everybody has that or do you think it's uniquely something that you are able to tap into? Oh God, I don't think I'm in a position to even consider an answer for that. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. It you, was, uh, yeah, I had no idea. Okay. Do you think that the voice you're hearing today is your higher power? Do you think that internal dialogue that you heard back then is the same higher power? Yeah. It was the way I the way I interpret this is that it was the the, the voices remain, but it's under my understanding of it has changed. 
you had talked about the moment where the words grow along spiritual lines stuck out to you when they were yeah. reading chapter five. And it seemed to go on for years after that, Jerusalem. And you said, I think two years it went on. For yeah. somebody listening that maybe has some sobriety behind them, days or weeks or years, and they they want to know how to get closer to their higher power and they feel terribly stuck, what advice do you have for them? Uh, don't run from the, the pain. Yeah, it's gonna hurt. Yeah, you wanna you want a closer relationship with with God or with a higher power. Um, be prepared for what you're actually asking for because it's gonna hurt. Any don't run from it. Yeah. Okay. What any particular action that they can take today? To build to build that a relationship with a higher power. Yeah. Um. Do the steps. Make this make the steps an active part of your life. If there if there's somebody asked me yesterday, are there any amends that you haven't done yet? And I said, well, there's there's some that well, at least excuse me, there's not some. There's one that I you know I don't know where she is. I don't even know her last name. Um. And if it comes up, I will make it, but I, I can't. He goes, no, 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 beside that, are there any amends that you haven't haven't made? And I said, no. Well, that's not something that I would have done early on because I, I shortcut and I try to find the path of least resistance in this program. And if I want a deeper relationship with God or the higher power, well, my higher power has given me an opportunity to have that deeper relationship, but it's not going to come from me listening to a meditation video on YouTube. It's going to come from me actually applying these steps into my life. So I think your question was actually the answer. It's action. It's not a thought process. It's not a, it's not a consideration. It's, it's action. Not just making the amends, for example, that's going to give me the pat on my back. Like I broke my mom's TV, I'll buy her a new TV. No, no, no. It's probably, you know, uh, going to the job where you stole money from or to the woman that you harmed. It's, it's the amends you don't want to make. It's the things you don't want to share in the inventory. It's all of the thoughts or the behaviors that you don't want to bring to light. That's what's going to help you. That's what my higher power, at least has given me an opportunity to embrace for this path and channel to be clear. It's what I don't want to do. Very clever. Very clever. I appreciate that perspective. And I love that. So so recently I'm asking you because a friend of mine has been asking me and I just keep telling her there's no right way, but you just have to put the effort in. For me, right. this is where I put my effort. For you, yeah. it sounds like you put your effort into the to amends. It's like you just have to I the way I explained it was you just have to show your higher power you give a shit and you will put your time and energy into to it and then then it'll guide you from there. But yeah. action is the core. Action. Yeah. Yeah. Well um, you said effort. It's you effort. know goes yeah. both ways. Yeah, yeah. Um so a couple more questions if you have time. Yeah, of course, of course. Okay, keep your beard away from the mic. 
Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. So. Oh, you're still. Re- is this still recording? Yes. This is Q and A. Oh. Okay. I thought this was just questions. No, okay, man. Right no, no. I thought you were just asking questions. I'm like, all right, cool. Yeah. Okay. No, for no, sure. No. No. This is. This is for the. I mean, yes. So the questions are totally self-serving. Um, yeah. So, and here's another really self-serving one. So your high school teacher shared that he was an alcoholic. And you had a friend's dad that was also took you to a meeting, I think, if I caught that right. Yeah, yeah. How do you feel with what you've experienced and the traditions and anonymity and all of that about this high school teacher telling his students um, and breaking his anonymity? Okay. Well, this is an interesting topic because... (laughs) I, I live in Oakland, California, and I'm, I moved here because I was given an opportunity to do a double master's degree, another g- a gift from the, the program. So my wife and I moved here. Well, the program that I'm doing is a master's degree in philosophy and a master's degree in theology. Hmm. Now, my thesis, which is why I, I was going to work on this anyways, um, Going back to this whole idea of willing to go along spiritual lines, as I shared, I'm not going to get too into detail about it, but I am a religious man today. Um, Well, what ended up happening with me was I started looking for people of this religion that were in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what I found was a lot of religious people who then turned to AA, but there wasn't a lot of literature on those who were in AA, formed in AA, a secular program, but then heard a voice in their heart, like I did, that led them to a religion. Well, I wanted to explore that, and I found a school that was willing to, for you know, lack of a huge expression, was, was, was willing to pay for it. My thesis is the philosophy of Alcoholics Anonymous in dialogue with the biblical approach to spiritual disease. I mean, I have to break my anonymity every time I share about my thesis in this program. Hmm. Because no one's going to be writing about AA unless they have a personal experience with AA. And sometimes I have to reveal things about me that's um that i have to really tailor because i forget i'm not in an aa meeting Hmm. so going back to your question how do i feel about my high school teacher and my dad's friend um you know and essentially breaking their anonymity well in that context, by the grace of God, they did because I didn't, where else would I have turned? Mm. Okay. For me personally, if you're asking in my opinion, I have a problem with breaking my anonymity because everyone and their mother is an AA and it looks good. It looks like hot stuff. You're responsible. Oh my gosh, you've got your stuff together. I can't tell you how many times people have looked at me with, with, you know, with big bright eyes because I said I was a member of AA and I was sober for blah, 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 blah. It looks good. When you join another 12 step program that ain't so glamorous, you realize how quickly you lean on anonymity. Mm. 
And I've done it. In my life, breaking my anonymity is valuable and harmful to myself and to this program. So it's another one of these maneuvers that I'm still learning how to engage in. When when is it appropriate to break my anonymity and when isn't? Now, the idea of it being the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, include, including you know spiritual foundation of my of my recovery. I find that when I'm breaking my anonymity and it's not for the benefit of another person, it's yet again another way to prevent myself from surrendering to God. I did this. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a member of AA. It has nothing to do with the individual. Or if it does, it's still leaning on the fact that I'm I'm the one that's doing this. I, 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 I. So it's 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 a it's um it's a really a dance. I don't have a clean there to me and personally there is no clean cut answer because if everyone didn't share that they were a member of AA, how would anybody hear the message? Now, of course, as I had a, my old sponsor, you could we lean on the fact that our actions and behavior speaks for themselves. But you go to you know you go to other countries outside of the United States, AA billboards are plastered everywhere. I don't know how yeah. I don't know how um anonymous that is when you're meeting people and they're passing out pamphlets. So it's 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 an interesting dance. I, I, but again, not to go on about this, but bringing it back to what you asked, I, I thank God that my teacher and my dad's friend revealed their own disease to me. And what I do whenever I have a, a birthday and anniversary day is I call these types of people. I call the first man that brought me to a meeting and I tell him how many years I got. And I wanted to thank him for being who he was in my life. Mm-hmm. So it could be harmful, but it could also be a blessing. Like, like many, as, as we know, this book is full of paradoxes and the alcoholic life is a paradox. Yeah. So. Yeah. Great response. Very thorough as a student. Yeah. Final question for the alcoholic out there listening, drifting away from their program. What message would you like to leave with them? Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.